Good morning, First Baptist. It is wonderful to be here with you. If you would, take your copy of God's Word wherever you have it. If you got it in a Bible or a device, or there's so many different ways that we can have the Word of God with us now, isn't there? It's, uh, it's amazing. We can have the Word of God with it. We, we don't have an excuse to be without the Word of God if you have a smartphone. Um, so um, I, I don't care what you're using to get it. Just get it. <laughs> get it in front of you. And we're going to look at James chapter 2 as we continue to go verse by verse through uh, the book of James. We are in James chapter 2 this morning. And this is this is really kind of the the middle, the heart of the message of James. We have uh, we've titled this sermon series "A Faith That Works" because James is a very practical book. the The emphasis of the book of James is that our faith would manifest itself in good works. And James is going to write today about, and I want us to focus and think about a faith that is genuine, a faith that is genuine. And this is a this is a passage that we need to take to heart. I told you last week as we looked at um, the idea of judgmentalism that the Bible often tells us to be more judgmental about ourselves than others. And so I want you to apply that today. The, the, whole, the whole take the, the plank out of your eye before you look at the speck in your brothers. Today, this passage, James writes it in a way that it is a self-assessment. That we would read it and it would cause us to think. How do we measure up to the test that is given here? How does our faith measure up? Do we exhibit and have genuine faith? And so I want you to think about that this morning as we look at this passage. But before we look at it, I, I, wanna, I want you to think about this for a minute. We don't think about it often, but when we stop and do think about it, we live in a very dangerous world. If you were to Google 21st century dangers, you would probably crawl in a corner in the fetal position after you began to look at the list. Just think about this for a minute. I mean, first of all, if you've been alive in America and watched the news over the last week, you know that there is terrorism and there's lots of different things. I don't want to get political about what's going on, but but the point of it is is we have to address that, that, that terror is a major danger in our society and in the world right now. Um, global warming is, is one that we hear often on the news that, you know, planet's just going to die. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> um, medical, all the medical things, you know, the 20, 20th century, 21st century, amazing medical advances. But with that comes all kinds of dangers and things to concern us. They can extend life now way further than they used to. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. With globalization and, and with it seems that our bodies and, and, and the things that they give us to stop certain diseases, all of a sudden now we're con- contracting new things. I mean, just think about it. Uh, in 2014, Ebola was such a big deal, right? Do you remember hearing about that on the news in Africa? Ebola just wiping out uh, communities, and even now, it's kind of died down now that it's winter, but we're in Florida, okay, South Florida, Zika, right? Everything, everything towards the end of last summer, every time you turned on the news around here, it was something about Zika. Um, economic disasters. 
global urbanization, I don't know if you know this, but there is a trend throughout the world right now that, that cities are gaining population rapidly. So big cities that are already big are increasing exponentially. And so there is major infrastructure issues. You know, when, when, when cities start growing by millions of people in a year, how do they handle the, the sanitation How do you get the trash out? How do you make new roads? How do you finance all of these things? And so all around the world, this is a big issue. Uh, Political instability. There's a lot of that right now. Nuclear weapons. It's different. I grew up in, in the 80s, and so all the bad guys on the cartoons had a Russian accent, right? But now the, the major superpowers of the world have, have, have gotten rid of a lot of their nuclear weapons. And we don't fear so much other superpowers going to war, but we fear even right now, if you've watched the news this last week, Iran testing ballistic missiles. South Korea gaining nuclear capabilities. Dirty bombs. You know, some of you are like, oh, no, I am, <laughs> this isn't why I came to church. <laughs> there, there is real threats and danger all around us. But today, I want to warn you of a danger that James warns you of that is particularly <sighs> acute for people in this room. For people who would come to church. For people who would not disagree necessarily about the things of Christianity, but, but for some who might agree, who might be okay with it, who might have soothed whatever kind of uh, discomfort they had about their sin and yet had a non-genuine faith, a false faith. That's what James is writing here, to give us a test, to give us something to look at, to, to, to make sure that we have a true faith and we are not self-deceived in what we believe. In what we believe. So if you would read with me, I'm going to, in James chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 14 and just read through 17 today. And this is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Is dead. This is a warning passage for us. Again, it's it's a passage for self-assessment. James gives a hypothetical situation here that we're to test and say, would I be that person? Would I act like that? Would I do those things? And James isn't alone. This is a controversial text. It has been throughout church history. I'm sorry, I've got to shed the coat. <laughs> it, it has been controversial throughout history. You know, what does this mean? What, you know, the idea of having a false faith. We don't like the sound of that, right? It makes us, it makes us cringe a little bit. But there is, throughout Scripture, this warning of self-deception, of not truly believing, of a belief and a faith that is not genuine 
Christianity. It's not the real deal. It's not the genuine article. Listen to this. Jesus says something very similar to this. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, some of the most chilling words that I think Jesus ever said. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A false faith. Do you see that? Individuals that are self-deceived, but don't exhibit and have true, genuine faith. Paul writes to this. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul gives a test. He writes and he says, Examine yourselves and see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves also? That Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. The Bible's full of passages that give these self-assessments. Don't just, don't just blindly trust that you're okay because something has soothed your soul. Are you really in the faith? Do you have true faith? And we're going to talk about what that looks like. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Peter writes and says, how do you, one of the ways that you know that your faith is genuine is because it will endure fire, difficult, hard things. And many of you have walked through these and have seen this and we can testify to this that i've walked through this road i've had this path god has brought this thing these things have happened to me and i've come out and i've said i would never want to walk down that again but i am glad that god grew me through that experience right right through fire tools are hardened without without fire if you were to get a wrench and try to use it on on a bolt It would bend. It wouldn't be hard enough. It takes the tempering. It takes the fire. And so in our life, often our faith is tempered through these difficult trials, as Peter writes. John writes, in fact, the whole book of 1 John is summarized by one commentator saying this, we can be assured of the authenticity of our faith if we enjoy fellowship with God based on the truth about Jesus Christ resulting in a lifestyle of obedience and love. Basically, the whole book about 1 John is about the evidences of true faith. What it looks like. In 1 John 1, 5 and 6, we see this. This is the message that, <clears throat> that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. So this is what Jesus told us, and so we're going to tell it to you. God is light, in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him, with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We are self-deceived. We do not practice the truth. James is picking up on this theme that Jesus says, Paul says, Peter says, John says. Throughout the New Testament, you can find these warning passages of self-assessment to see, do I have a genuine faith? Does my faith look like what faith should look like? 
He begins in chapter 1, verse 22. He begins on this, this path that we're on right now. And he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. See, right there is the self-deception. If you are a hearer only and not a doer and you think you're good, you're what? Self-deceived. You've lied to yourself. You've half believed the truth. It's not fully there. You should have no confidence, no hope if you're a hearer only and not a doer. And that's the theme that continues. In fact, in verse 26 of chapter 1, James issues a test here. It says, if anyone thinks he's religious, okay, this is a positive sense of religious. I know religion is used in a lot of negative ways today, but this is a positive sense. If you're religious, if you're a God-fearing person, if you are a member of the church, if you are a Christian and do not and does not bridle his tongue, he but deceives his heart. So again, self-deception. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Again, here it's not just these two acts, but the idea is, is that this is a selfless act that you would do. That in this day and this time, that you, would, that you would go and you would help an orphan. Somebody of no stance, of no value, of no... They're, they're, you're not going to get anything back. Same thing with widows during this day. They have no possessions. They're not going to pay you for helping them. There's, there's nothing. It's you giving of your time to go and help someone else. Why? Because they're in need to do a good work for their good. Such, James says, is a genuine faith, is a true faith, is not a self-deceived faith. And then he moves on uh, beyond that point to make application that we looked at last week with this situation about how the greeter looks at somebody and judges someone based on outward appearance, this snob in the church that says, oh, you look important. You sit, you sit here and come to the good spot. You, eh, you're shabby. You're, you're not going to add anything here. We'll, we'll put you over, we'll put you over here or at the feet. We'll save the good seats for the good people. And James writes says that this very person who thinks that he's so good and has it all figured out and his life's put together and he is a man of God is in fact breaking all of the commandments because he's breaking the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself as he is snobbishly judging these people. And I want you to see this. James is continuing this theme now. As we begin to look, and he, and he, so far, he said, you might be self-deceived. Now he's going to say, this kind of faith is worthless. Is worthless. It's of no value at all. It's of no faith. It's no good. It's a fake faith. Listen to what he says here, okay? He asks hypothetical questions here. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith, but does not have works. Okay? And so the, the, that's the question. The answer would be, it's no good. It's, it's no good at all. He goes on and he says, can that faith save him? Now, I, I gotta bring up some of your translations leave out the, the, the that. It says, can faith save him? Well, we know that faith can save. And this has been a confusing part of this, but if you look at the Greek, it, it identifies, can that kind of faith save him? Is what he is, is what he's actually saying. Is that kind of faith, the kind of faith that he's talking about, a faith that says, 
um, that, it, that it has no works, that it, it, it only believes. There's, there's no show in it. It's only, it's only mental exception, mentally receiving and believing the truth. There's no transformation. There's no outward working. Can that faith, can a faith like that save him? That's James' question. What's the answer? No. You guys, this is easy, okay? We're going we're gonna to go back on this. And then he gives a hypothetical situation here. He says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you, you see this and you say to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving, any, without giving them anything that's needed for the body, what good is that? And the answer would be? None. It's no good. Okay, so let's, let's try this again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not works? It's no good. Can that kind of faith save him? No. Okay? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that's needed for the body, what good is that? It's no good. See, that's... That's the hypothetical argument that James is putting up here. As we read this text, we should, we should beat him to the point and answer these questions. It's no good. It's not genuine faith. And in fact, he's going to go on and he's going to say, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's no good. That's the point that James is making is that it is a dead faith. Now, I want to go through this text a little bit different. I want to make some observations about what this text says, some things that we can look at this and, and draw and say. Okay, and so the first thing that I, that I want to bring out is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. James is not relegating and saying that we are not saved by faith. This has been uh, something where this, this verse, this passage is pitted against Paul, and it's gone on for a long time. In fact, I, I don't know if you've ever had this, but I've had unbelievers trying to disprove the Bible to me and say, what about Paul and James? Has anybody ever witnessed that? Has anyone ever approached them with that kind of an argument? Oh, the Bible contradicts itself all over. James says we're saved by works. Paul says we're saved by faith. Has anyone heard that? It's something that you'll get. And on the surface level, this can be confusing if we don't take a little bit of time and try to understand exactly what James is saying and also what Paul is saying, as we'll look at in a moment. James is not disputing at all that we are saved by faith alone. He is in no way disputing that. What he is trying to say is, what does genuine faith look like? Okay, we all have to ask, ask the question, what is faith? What is this stuff? Faith. Not, not faith in Christ, but what is faith? What does faith look like? Friends, we put faith in everything every day. You put faith in the chair as you sat down in it. You put faith in your car as you drove to church today. If you walked, you didn't have enough faith. <laughs> but listen to this. We put faith in things all the time beyond just in Christ. What is faith? What does it look like? What is someone who is genuine in something versus a phony? Let me give you an illustration. Tonight, there's something happening on TV about a ball, and 
It's the Super Bowl, right? And it's the Falcons and the Patriots. Okay, if I came in here and, and I put on a Patriots hat because everybody's a Patriots fan now just because they keep winning. I know, I know, I know. Deflate gate. But if I came in and I put on a, on, on a Patriots hat and I, jersey and I'm, I'm ready. And you came and said, wow, you're quite the Patriots fan, aren't you? I said, oh yeah, I love them. Have you ever gone to a game? Oh, no, I, I wouldn't go to a game. Um, do, you know, do, you, do you like their quarterback, Tom Brady? Who? Who? Uh, Tom, I don't, is that the guy that throws the ball? I really don't know a whole lot about football. But man, I love the Patriots! That is a fake faith, isn't it? It's not genuine Friends, let me explain something to you. James is basically writing from this same perspective. He's saying, look at your life. You say you trust Jesus. You say you love Jesus. You say that you're all about Jesus. Do you know him? Do you love him? Has he made any change in your life? If not, you're like me putting on a Patriots hat, knowing nothing about football and not really caring. But man, I love the Patriots. Do you see that? So James and Paul here are not arguing with each other. In fact, James has already stated every good thing, every good perfect gift comes down from God. Surely this would include salvation in verse 18 of chapter 1. In verse 2, in chapter 2 verse 1, he talks about your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Faith is an important topic for James. Listen to what Paul writes. Before we pit James against Paul, we, we all know and love Ephesians 2.8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Amen? amen. That's an amen verse. Now, here's verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Did good works matter to Paul? Absolutely. Did the idea of a fake faith that just, that just says, yes, I love Jesus, but doesn't show any transformation, any works at all, would Paul have a problem with that? Yes, he would. James and Paul are not against each other. The message of Scripture of the New Testament is clear. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. But a life that's transformed is a life that actively lives to the glory of God. Did you catch that? A life that's transformed by the gospel is a life that lives actively for the glory of God. And that's what James is writing about here as he sees, as we see so often today. And church, let me tell you, I'm not coming down on you here. I don't think we have a lot of false believers here. I, I intend for this message to be a wake-up maybe, saying, man, there's more I should do. Perhaps God has been calling you to do something, and you've been putting it off and, and trying, to, trying to, to not do it. And he's speaking to you through this, saying, I need to take that step. I need to do that thing, whatever it is. I need to serve that person. I need to reach out. I need to care. There's a, maybe a ministry that I want to do that I need to do. Okay, that's what I'm hoping for. But I also want us to realize and understand that we have to be careful about testing the genuineness of our faith and understanding that there is a possibility of false faith for those around us. Because how many have we met 
that maybe have prayed a prayer or have walked an aisle. Perhaps they're baptized. Maybe they were a member in a church. They've fallen away. They've never exhibited genuine faith. Jesus talks about this. Remember the parable of the seeds? And only the last one is the one that endured and produced fruit. I'm trying to give you a lens by which you can, you, can, you can interpret what's going on as you see others because one of the worst things that we could do is accept someone's testimony of a false faith and they say, I came forward, I accepted Jesus, I'm good. It doesn't matter what I do, right? It's by faith alone. And there is no change in their life and there's no affections for Jesus Christ whatsoever. Friends, there are many people that are going to go to hell that know a lot about Jesus. But they don't have genuine faith and so we need to be careful that we can call that person and say you know what you 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 seem to know the right things but where's the change this is what the bible says there should be a change let me let me keep going here um so there is such a thing as a false faith uh james in 2 14 says this person that, that he has faith but talk is cheap here right talk's cheap James says, let's see it. And so then he gives this, he gives this illustration. I love this illustration, okay? Think about this now. It's, it's hard. We have to, we have to imagine. It's cold outside. <laughs> it's really cold, okay? I love Florida. Okay? It's cold outside. Someone doesn't have a coat. He's freezing. Okay? He's in bad shape. And, and this is, this is somebody in the body. James is talking about a fellow believer in the church. And he's destitute. He doesn't have food to eat. He doesn't have any money. His clothing is shabby. He's freezing. He's in a bad place. And, and you see it, you great, wonderful believer who has faith, this faith that James is speaking of. And you see this person and you can't even take the time to help them. In fact, they say, man, I'm so cold. It is so cold out there. I, I really, I'm, I haven't eaten all week. It's just tight right now. And your response is, man, that's awesome, brother. Be warm. Eat good. I got to go. I got to go. I got to hurry up because I got to beat the Methodist to the Mexican restaurant. That's the kind of, that's, that's what he's talking about. That's the scenario here. Now, it seems a bit extreme. But let me ask you, how many people do we overlook that we know and that we should help how often does the spirit of god urge you in some way you know i should check up on that person i should call them perhaps it's not just financial perhaps it's somebody that you know is lonely and could really use a someone to talk to perhaps it's somebody that you know needs physical help you see all of these things are 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 like that that example that james gives about pure religion for the widows and the orphans. It's selfless acts of love and kindness. James says this. This is what genuine faith looks like. You can see it. It's not just what someone says in response to their faith, but you can see it happening in their life. Friends, would people see these things in your life? It's a tough question. There is such a thing as a false faith. Now, what does false faith look like? And I want, I'm going to give two big buckets of, of what we can say false faith looks like because this is, this is something that we see often in the church. 
Again, as much of a blessing as it is for you to be under the Word of God and to, to take in the Word of God, and I hope that that is your desire, there's also a danger in that you would have a false faith, in that you would ignore what was going on, in that you would just sit here, zone out, tune out, and say, oof, that's not what genuine faith looks like. And so we see false faith in, in two big ways. The first way is in legalism, okay? Is in the concept and the idea of legalism. And legalism says at its heart, I must earn my salvation. Legalism says, yes, Jesus died for me, but if I want to be really good, i got to do all the right stuff. Okay? Legalism is like someone who didn't have a good relationship with their father and they're still trying to earn that acceptance. Okay? We've all met adults like this, right? Like they've grown up, they've lived their own life, they have their own kids and they're still doing crazy stuff just to try to impress dad. Let me, let me tell you something. And this was big for me. Jesus has never nor will ever love you more than the moment he was on the cross. Amen. Did you take that? We don't have to impress him. Now, we should want to honor him, and we should want to obey him, and we should want him to, to look at our lives and say, that is a life that is lived for me. That glorifies God. But that doesn't make Jesus love you more. Jesus loves you. He loves you. He genuinely loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. While we were yet sinners, while we despised God, while we hated Jesus, while we cursed him, and while we did not live for him, he said, I love you. So much that he went to the cross. He gave all that he could give. You're not going to make him more happy with you Okay? And a lot of people need to hear this. Some of you are like, eh. A lot of you need to hear this. Don't live your life thinking that you're going to make Jesus happy or sad with you like he's a father that you're trying to impress. He loves you and he wants the best for you and he wants you to live for him. But you're not earning his love. You're not earning your salvation. That's what legalism is at its heart. It says, what Jesus did got me started, but it's not good enough. I need to do a little bit more. And then it turns into, you need to do a little bit more too. Right? Legalists are very good at being judgmental. It's saying, well, I'm trying to earn God's favor, so you should also. And we end up with a lot of extra rules. Paul writes about legalists in his day. The book of Galatians is, is one of the big prompts why Paul writes this group called the Judaizers. And basically they were going to the Gentiles and they were preaching a gospel that didn't say believe in Jesus and be saved. They were preaching a, a, a gospel that said if you want to believe in Jesus, become a Jew, become a proselyte, get circumcised, and then earn enough favor with God that you can be saved by Jesus. Friends, Jesus plus anything loses the gospel. We're not talking about earning your salvation when we're talking about good works. We're not talking about earning your salvation. The other thing that we see, and this is more of what James is writing to, and this is something that we see, I think, more. I think legalism was a bigger temptation of the church, especially in the South, um, in the last generation and the generations before. What now we face is the opposite side of the coin, which is called antinomianism, which means without law. That there is no law. That you don't, obedience isn't necessary. 
Antinomian says that my obedience does not matter in my salvation. And there's a half-truth here, right? Because God didn't save me because of my good works. God didn't save me because I would bring something to him. God didn't save me because he looked at Bob and said, man, he's a, he's a good guy. He can sure preach. I need him on my team. God didn't save us for our obedience. But a genuine faith is a life that works and desires obedience to God and to all that he's commanded. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go into all the world, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Obedience is essential to our Christian life. It does not earn our salvation, but it is essential. We should have a desire, if we are genuinely saved, to want to obey and to glorify God. And so, um, again, we have two ends of the perspective. But do you see how these are false faiths? One says, I can, I can earn my salvation a little bit more. The other one says, it doesn't matter what I do. And we see this one a lot, don't we? This is the individual that, that perhaps is a church background, has gone to some kind of event, has responded in some kind of a way, and no change has happened whatsoever in their life, although they say that they're a Christian. This is the danger with the idea of Christian nation. This is the danger with the idea of Bible Belt, of cultural Christianity, is that we would, we would, we would believe in a way so much that we would think because my neighbors or I have a good church next to me or my parents are good Christians that I must be okay. And I believe that stuff too. So I'm good. But there's no evidence of a life transformed. There's no evidence of a new heart. James would say, what good is that? What good is that kind of faith? Is that the stuff that faith is? That's, that's the Patriots fan. The, the fake Patriots fan, okay? <laughs> it is though, isn't it? Cultural Christianity is like the fake Patriots fan. Oh, I love the Patriots! I don't care to watch them or do anything about it. But I'm good with Patriots. That's cultural Christianity. It's not transformation by the gospel. James Wrighton says that this kind of faith is worthless and dead. It's unable to save you. Third thing that we can see here is that genuine faith, and this is a big one, so tune in if I've lost you. Genuine faith is more than agreeing with propositional truths about the gospel. It's more than just having some knowledge. It's more than just knowing some things. James is writing this to people here who are part of the church these are people who we would assume are in agreement with the gospel. These aren't, he's not writing to people outside of the church, unbelievers. He's writing to people who claim that they have faith. They have some kind of knowledge about Jesus Christ, about what the gospel is. Look at verse 18. James begins a hypothetical uh, argument here about faith. He says, but some of you will say he's, he's anticipating this argument that's going to come back. Some of you are going to say, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe God is one. That's a huge argument. Remember, this is an early book. This is written mostly to Jewish Christians. God is one is the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. This is something that good Jewish people would look and say every day. God is one. This is, this is a huge statement within that culture. 
This is a confession of who God is. God is one. He is one God. James writes and says, God, you, say, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe this and shudder. So what is faith? What is the stuff that we call faith? What is it? What is it? I want to talk to you about faith the way that this has been talked about throughout church history, throughout the New, New Testament church history, okay? And there's three, there's three things that really make up true, genuine faith. And this is in Jesus, but this is also in everything in our life. And the first is cognitive, okay? The first is we have to know. We have to know something to believe in it, right? We have to know about the gospel. We have to, to know who Jesus is. We have to know that we are sinners and can confess to that and say, I want Jesus to save me. There, there is a knowledge. So I'm not downplaying knowledge, but I'm saying knowledge alone in the gospel is not enough to save you. If you just know the truth, James says, great, wonderful. The demons know that. Is that enough? No. So, so, so the first idea is cognitive. We have to, we have to know something. We have to know the gospel. We have to understand it. This is why, this is why we, we teach the Bible. This is why we teach the Bible to children. But we have to teach and understand the Bible in a way because unfortunately this happens as well. Sometimes people who share the gospel, sometimes preachers, can preach the gospel in such a way that, that they want you to believe a certain truths. They'll say, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Do you think that you're bad if you sinned? Yeah, I've done some stuff. Did you know that Jesus died on a cross to save sinners? Yeah, I knew that. Would you like Jesus to save you and forgive you of your sin? Oh, that'd be wonderful. Pray this prayer. Brother, you're now a Christian. That gospel, while correct, is inadequate. There is nothing there about a transformed life. There is nothing there about following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is nothing there about transformation, about living for God's glory. There is nothing there. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, pick up your cross and carry it daily. Count the cost. We have to be careful that we're not trying to have people agree to a set of truths and say, that's enough. Now get baptized, because I want to report that number. There's more to faith. There's more to genuine faith than just acknowledgement of truth. There's also an effectual. Okay, it should change us. It should change our desires. We should personally believe and trust in the gospel. Okay, if I said that I'm a Patriots fan, you said, do you like the Patriots? Oh, I like the Patriots. Do you watch them? Do you want to do anything with them? Do you, eh, Okay. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have genuine faith, you should love Christ. It, it, it should be a desire. There should be a change in our affections and in our hearts where the things that we used to not, lo- that used to not like about God and about church and about Christ, now we, we have a desire for those things. And the things of the world, the sinfulness, the brokenness that we used to enjoy and, and relish in, it should not have the same pull to us because there are new affections. Do you have that? That's what faith is. That you actually believe in something. You say, I want this. I love this. I want to be a part of this. And that plays itself out in the third way, which is behavioral. If, if you know something is true, if you believe that it's true and you, and you love it, would it be silly that you wouldn't want to do it? Right? 
That's, that's why this stuff called faith involves all three of these things. I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. I know that He's died for me. I know that He loves me. I want to be saved by Him. I want to live for Him. I want to live the life that He has for me. And I'm going to do it. And look, I can see it in these ways. Because I'm changed. That's faith. That's real faith. That's what James is writing here. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have a faith where when you see something, you, you work, you want to honor people, you want to glorify them, you want to carry out the royal law that James said, to love your brother as yourself, to love others as you love yourself. You have that desire that you want to know and you want to love God. Let me end with this final point, and that is genuine faith bears fruit. Genuine faith bears fruit. Now, I've, I, I don't fully understand, but I know from reading in the history, at one time this area was just covered in fruit groves, in, in citrus groves, and pineapples. I heard there were pineapples everywhere in, in the Indian River in this area, and you hardly see any of it now. In fact, when you do go by an orange grove, it's pretty sad for the most part, isn't it? There's, uh, there's all kinds of diseases and different things that have affected them, and so this area does not grow uh, citrus like it used to. And so you see lots of dead trees and, and dead branches as opposed to where there used to be fruitful, wonderful uh, citrus groves. Listen to this verse that Jesus says in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. That's what James is saying here. If we have a genuine faith, we should see it by the fruits in our lives. Take the test. Is your faith genuine? Is it genuine? Does your life look like an empty stick? Or does it look like a a healthy branch that is covered in fruit? And again, we're going to struggle. I'm not saying that. But if in your life you say, I believe in Jesus, but what I do really doesn't matter. I I don't care to go to church. I don't care to be a part of that. I don't disagree with it. I'm a Christian, by the way. Your faith is not one which I would risk my life on, nor do I I, uh, give you advice to risk your eternal life on. A genuine faith looks very different than that. It looks very different than an empty stick. Genuine faith is a faith that works, that's seen in its work. Martin Luther, at the, at the time of the Reformation, this was a big debate. You know, how are we justified? Are we justified by faith plus our works, or are we justified by faith alone? And the, the Reformation in which we are in the lineage of says, by faith alone we are justified. Faith alone saves us. This is what Martin Luther said in response to that because the criticism is, is, is what, what James is writing here. Well, that's antinomianism. You mean you don't have any good works? Here's what Martin Luther said. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Friends, is that your faith?